gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 16, the review segment for Friday, March 28th, 2014. Today the floods are coming, Tubal Cain and his armies are arriving, and David predictably thinks that he knows better than me and Patches about how to feel about Noah. He is he is a, an innocent, godly man, and we are the I heathens. We're the heathens who enjoy <laughs> pop entertainment, and we must be destroyed. Oh it is a, it's gonna be a battle for the souls of humanity as God decides to destroy the earth. But first, we get to argue about Noah. It's out this Friday. Darren Aronofsky's uh, is his passion project. It's the movie he got 160 million dollars to make after Black Swan made a bazillion dollars, and it is. Sort of the story you learned in Sunday school? Actually, neither of you went to Sunday school. I'm the only one. I went, I went to, to Bible Hebrew camp. School. I went to Bible okay. camp. Yeah. Wait, you went to Bible camp, Badges? Well, it was like one week a summer. I would go visit my grandparents and go to Bible school camp where I would make like popsicle stick crosses and learn about why I will never follow this religion ever again. It was very wow. insightful. I enjoyed Bible <laughs> camp. And so David went to Hebrew school. So we all know Noah. I like the songs. There weren't enough Noah songs, but I guess we have Noah's Fluid or whatever it's called. There's a... Uh... Um, the Lord said Noah to build him an arky. Arky, arky, yeah, okay, I know. Yeah. yeah. And everything was, oh, whatever. That's how that song went. Noah, I have a lot of feelings about this movie that keep Wait, changing. Tell, what's it about, about, Katie? It's about Noah in the ark, come on. Yeah, but it's more complicated than that. Song. This is okay, the revisionist history of Noah. So it turns out the chapter of Genesis of Noah is actually extremely short, so... Darren Aronofsky and his co-writer have kind of taken a couple liberties with the Bible and also expanded on some things that may or may not be lost in translation, like the ideal of idea of the Watchers, which are angels fallen to Earth who have turned into rock monsters, which I've heard people compare to Transformers, which I don't think is totally fair, but I don't think is entirely off base either. One of them is voiced by Nick Nolte. They're very big and loud rock monsters. They help Noah build the Ark after he gets a sign from God that he should build an Ark and there's a flood coming. His grandfather, Methuselah, is played by Anthony Hopkins. He's still around, but not living with his family for reasons I don't totally understand. And uh, he is has powers of magic and helps Noah interpret his dreams. He builds an ark. There are plenty of other people on the planet. They are all descendants of Cain, who, as we all know, killed Abel, his brother, in the Garden of Eden. They are all basically evil. They're led by Tubal Cain, who's played by Ray Winston, and... They don't believe in the word of God. Noah does. Noah has been chosen. His family are the only ones who get to survive. So they build an ark. There's a big battle. Then the floods come. And they wind up on an ark. And things get even more complicated even after most of humanity has been killed off. It's the original apocalypse story. There's a lot going on. There's some stuff that would be very familiar from people who like Darren Aronofsky movies, particularly this segment in which Noah recounts the story of Genesis, which we can talk about later. And then there's some stuff like giant rock monsters that might seem a little out of place. For me, I think the balance between more typical blockbuster elements like giant hordes of people fighting and rock monsters and a sense of, you know, one good man versus the evil hordes kind of got away from the artsier, more interesting parts of the story, which I think really got to play in in the second half. But it's the second half stuff that I appreciate the most and that I think about the most. And I find it kind of easy to let go of the stuff that I didn't think worked as well while I was watching it. So... In the end, it works for me with a ton of reservations. And I, I I find it hard to imagine recommending this movie without any reservations. And Patches, I'm curious if that's how you feel. So I know I think I think you're a bigger fan than recommend I with with reservations. Well so wait, your reservation is that the blockbustery stuff doesn't really work for you? I think I mean parts of that don't really work for me. There are parts when the movie when the movie gets busiest, when it's focusing on a lot of different people, when it has the most people in play, I feel like I lose track of what all of the characters want. There's things where Logan Lerman's ham kind of wants a wife, and then you have what Noah wants, and you have what Jennifer Connelly's wife. I mean, it's all pretty fundamental her. stuff, and I think that's something that Aronofsky really clings to. You know, but even all not- of the characters in his previous movies, they're not really deep people. They're they're kind of boiled down to these either instinctual desires or or these kind of fundamental emotions, and each character in this movie is the same way mind that it's my yeah, no. kind of having a sense of what those people actually want in the moment which is something i lost track of until it kind of boils down to more of a family drama in the second half 
And in general, the rock monsters did not work for me. See, the rock monsters yeah. do work know, for we, me. That was an interesting conversation I had with you earlier where you really, like Nick Nolte voicing one of these rock <laughs> monsters, like you felt like you felt a Nick Nolte performance in this? I don't know. Well, I mean, there's not that much performance because they mostly grunt and kind of spurt out exposition and then fight Tubal Cain's armies. But um, I, I really admired the way that this movie kind of sets itself up as this Ray Harryhausen adventure movie, which it certainly even the rock monsters appear to be kind of stop motiony. I really like that. And combined with this kind of like classic John Ford road movie, like even the shots where uh, Noah is walking against the sunset with a rock monster. I mean, it's mm. it's very there's Western elements that that Ford feeling Um and then it kind of takes a 180 and goes in a totally different direction. And uh, I can understand why t- people would feel jolted from that. And maybe that it doesn't coalesce and really connect in, in, a, in an enjoyable way. Um, but I like both portions. You know, I, it was a shaky start for Noah. Um, it opens with the retelling of, of creation and, and, you know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and eating the apple and the snake appearing. It's another goddamn origin story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the origin of the planet. Guys, I, we, we don't need to reboot this again. I know what happens. <laughs> um, and actually, that's real. It's kind of clumsy stuff. It almost feels like that's the studio note. Like, give us more backstory. Really? I, I, I like the kind of intense score and dramatic retelling of how the cosmos began. It just looks really silly. Uh, like it, I don't like the artistic vision behind those, those choices or making those hyper stylized. Um, and, and it's clumsily handled. Like the way we enter into this story just feels very incoherent to me. And then all of a sudden Noah and his family is, they're being chased by Tubla Cain's, uh, thugs and they kind of run into this black sand desert where the story really gets going, when Noah starts having visions and connecting with God, and now he has a mission. And that's when the whole thing really picked up and started being interesting to me. Um, You know, I've been thinking a lot recently about um, Noah and and comparing it to the uh, television show Cosmos and also seeing these, like, heavy-handed Christian films that keep being successful, Son of God or God's Not Dead, this... uh, you saw that? No, I did not see it, but I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I feel like I've gotten the whole thing out of the trailer. It's just a kid arguing why God's real because no one can prove that he's not real. And it's <laughs> basically an, a, a Christian lecture crazy. and really preaching to the choir. And here's a movie that really struck me because it seems to be dabbling in both. It can concern itself with realism and humanity while also connecting to spirituality. And what if... God was real and what if God wanted to wipe out humanity and what if he put one person in charge of that and I was just fascinated by like turning the Bible into mythology which would involve a huge battle like I I love Greek mythology too especially growing up and they could be parable stories while also having huge battles and that this they, that's what Aronofsky turned Noah into. And I, I was kind of on board for the whole thing. So even when it became like Gladiator and Noah's punching guys alongside giant rock monsters, I don't know if they were in Gladiator. But um, Gladiator. yeah. And then all of a sudden it became this like really intense character piece about someone who is basically the equivalent of that crazy lady who drowned her kids in the bathtub because God told her to. Like to really swing the pendulum and go into totally – intense character-driven direction. I mean, that all kind of worked for me because that's how mythological stories operate. Honestly, the only human moment or question raised by this compromised, bombastic movie, which reveals the flaw. I mean, it reveals that Darren Aronofsky is an interesting but not particularly good filmmaker, uh, which is something that I've been more or less convinced of for years, uh, is the end where it leaves you with... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the most hilariously uh, unaddressed incest in film history. <laughs> I mean, well, and also in general, I mean, that's always been part of the Bible. Uh, no, part of it's part history. of the Bible. It is not part of this movie. <laughs> this is a movie that goes out of its way to invent giant angel Nick Nolte rock monsters to be part of the story of Noah's Ark. And I think justifies them rather well. And I think the stop motion flourish of their CG is one of the neater, more effective 
visual touches uh, in in the film. Uh, one of the only really effective ones besides that, and uh, I really like the the little things, the 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 sky with the stars during the daytime. Mm-hmm. That was very uh, cool. You, you could see the heavens. You can see, but only pre-flood, which I find interesting. But th- I think the movie—it actually reminded me a lot of *A Beautiful Mind* in some ways. And there's, you know, your reteaming of Jennifer Connelly and Russell Crowe. Uh, I, I, I ever heard one. <laughs> and here's another movie where, uh, where you know, just like would somebody let Logan Lerman fuck Emma Watson already? Jesus Christ! I don't know how many <laughs> more of these movies I can deal with. But uh, the uh, you know, in *A Beautiful Mind*, you have a story of John Forbes Nash, who and and the, my whole problem with that movie is that. Um, it's ostensibly a celebration of the human spirit, but it denies everything that made John Forbes Nash interesting, like his uh, the anti-Semitism and homophobia that arose from his schizophrenia, uh, and so it really you know denies what it is for him to be human, what it, what really complicated the scenario enough for it to be interesting, and just sort of celebrates the good bits. And while Noah doesn't necessarily do that, it does suffocate so much of what could possibly be interesting about this drama, uh, including you know transposing a very drab, contemporary, you know, suburban family model over a clan that is going to have to have raging incest in order to repopulate the earth. <laughs> and, and like, Wait, but I don't, why are you who, so hung up on this? Who's going to fuck those babies at the end? Anyway. Uh, Ham is coming back to, to fuck those babies later. To have sex with his niece and his nieces? Jesus Christ. I mean, but that's not the emphasis of this movie. It's not, you know, but that's what I'm saying, is that the thing is that here is a movie that doesn't really... I don't really know what it what it's trying to do here. I mean, I understand how Aronofsky felt as if he could apply his trademark bombast to a biblical story, and that is by far and away, uh, once again, the least interesting thing in his movie. I mean, I think that like the funnels of water coming out from the earth and the Lord of the Rings like rock battle are actually pretty effective. But it's how I mean, again, he struggles in finding humanity underneath that. Um, I think that all the characters are way too broadly sketched. I never really understood or cared really about Noah because he was no more nuanced than he is in the Bible, uh, which is to say, uh, really much, but, uh, and you know, and, and certainly it's it's all flattened out by the, you know, people around him were dull as dishwater. The only interesting, the most interesting character in the movie or the person who brings the most interesting thing out of Noah is a girl who is in exactly two scenes and gets horribly murdered. (laughs) Um, but uh, – which like is actually a human element that introduces, introduces to his character. But what I'm saying about the incest thing is that there are lots of interesting human applica- implications to the story and ways they could be applied to making a huge movie about this, a two-hour-plus <laughs> More incest blockbusters. Bible story. I'm just saying that like it's it, it wants to have its cake and eat it too and how it's like, oh, no, this is like this war with God and all this battle. But the drama is so banal – and so refuses to actually engage in some of the – I think it's just like that matter of incest, whatever. And yes, I'm sort of <laughs> – Harping on this. Sort of being tongue-in-cheek tongue in as I harp on it. But it, for me, sort of typified how the movie is this incredibly and refreshingly strange mega blockbuster that also felt so afraid of confronting – the, what the heart of the story is. I totally you know, disagree, what? and I imagine Katie would too. There's a, so much going on with Noah and the decisions he makes to be stone cold, especially throughout the beginning of the film when his family is so desperate to like make human said, connections outside who, of this. I mean, it's a woman who, you know, feels that God is telling her to drown her kids in the bathtub. I mean, I, why, why? But I, to I become, to go from a normal person time, to be a family he's man. Right this time. He's not right about everything, but he's right that he had a vision from God. Like, there is correctness to it. Right. In the world of Noah, he is speaking to God. Someone, like, he is being communicated to to carry out this mission. And he's essentially deciding whether to kill members of his family or to and, and follow the, the word of God, which he has believed in and trusted in. His whole foundation is built on that. Or to be a family man, which he has also been previously in the movie. You know, you know he's very caring I to just, his family just, and and, uh, and would kill for them. He says that. He would commit a sin, which he knows is wrong and knows care. puts him like, in I, camp I, I with Tubal Cain. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> – I think the movie does a very good job of establishing that from told- beginning to end. He's t- I mean, he knows full well that he's condemning many innocent people to death. And that, again, is the most interesting scene in the film, which he uh, plays a very direct hand in, in the death of one of them, one of those innocent people. Uh, and, you know, tens of thousands or however many it is, hundreds probably, uh, of these people die. 
Uh, and and he does that in order to fulfill God's wishes. I don't really care if it's more difficult for him to kill these two babies. Um, I, I certainly, whatever interest I did have, flags tremendously when the movie, again, sacrifices the integrity of its story by shoehorning in a very lame and traditional villain in the uh, Ray Winstone character who – I don't believe for a second, even within the obviously this is not an especially realistic film, but emotionally it has to have some credibility where he is hiding in the in the boat and you have the kid going all War of the Worlds, you know, Logan Lerman in another completely asinine performance uh, who is just waiting there with him and saying – like, oh, you know, I'm going to keep you here for six months because I need revenge on my father. Whereas it, would, it wouldn't have stymied the drama in any way whatsoever if Logan Lerman had just decided – or Ham, the character – had just decided to leave his family because of the death of that girl. I mean we're going a little in spoiler territory now, I suppose. But there's nothing that his animosity being uh, exacerbated by the Ray Winstone character does – to actually make except it's trying to explore through the blueprint of the biblical story so it wants to follow particular beats so it's asking why would this story actually occur um so he is reworking within a framework to do with the actual bible that's an invention right but ham needs to get to the end i mean ham needs to be along for the entire journey so why would he what i'm saying is that david i I think i agree with david in that i think ham could have gone through that journey of but i like seeing against his father without having the but i like i like ray winston being this kind of pure id emotionally interesting story of noah to, which is bookended by action scenes and like combat scenes of Ray Winstone having a knife fight with Noah. That is, I I just can't accept any argument that suggests that. Okay, makes this you don't have to accept the argument. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that Tubal Cain at least adds this this worst case scenario for humanity. You get to see. I mean, I'm glad that Tubal Cain exists as a villain in this Noah story because then Noah can have visions of basically hell. I mean, you know I guess a it's Tubal, Tubal Cain's camp. Wait, I, I'm um when when he enters Tubal Cain's camp and just sees all these people acting horribly, um and needs to see what the worst case scenario is for humanity. And he needs, his son needs to be tempted by that. We need that antithesis of Noah, the perfect human, quote unquote, to really understand and fully form why this, why someone would carry out this heinous act of building a boat and escaping humanity and letting everyone perish. And Tubalcane's best, I mean, Tubalcane's finest moment is when he emerges from the camp as the water starts to fall and he has this little monologue to himself or no one in particular about sort of his place in God's plan. Uh, And that is interesting. It is, as with every character in the movie, and I could not disagree with Katie anymore, uh, that what Aronofsky has planned for them uh, ultimately is so uninteresting. Uh, it does. It completely fails to serve what little promise there is in the first half of the movie. I find the drama, which all takes place in this arc, which is very poorly geographically <laughs> sketched out. I mean, all the money yes, that goes I into building this thing. Uh, you know, it's it's there. You get one or two shots. The most interesting shots of the flood are not of the ark itself, but rather of you know the last living humans outside the ark clinging to their. Oh, that shot is amazing! On a, yeah, on a rock, and you hear the screams from inside. Anyway, um, but. I, I, mean, I agree with Patches that the stuff with Tubalcane and, and his citizens in the little makeshift city is about as interesting as the movie gets. But it becomes so so silly when Logan when Ham runs in there and uh, you know dives to the pit. And I, I mean, like I, I I enjoyed that it was very. Uh, it wasn't like we need to find you someone to love. It's like we need to find you a woman. I don't know. I liked, you know, another but, thing I like about Tubalcane is how slovenly he is and this whole idea that the movie, you know, that Noah doesn't eat meat and he really respects animals and the environment angle and how Tubalcane, when he sneaks on the ship, uh, he he picks up an animal which looks kind of like an eel or some sort of – I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a snake. Maybe it's a snake, but he picks it up and he bites its head off. It just starts eating it because people eat meat and that's how we – that's how we dominate the rest of the world. And I kept thinking, I'm like, what animal was that? That animal did not procreate. It did not make the, the trip. I know, right? Like we don't have – What animal are we missing because Tubal Cain got hungry? 
Oh yeah, or that the, even the creature in the very beginning that with the it was like a deer but with feathers. Oh no, I thought it was an armadillo dog or something. But it has feathers. I don't know. We don't have the that anymore. In the very beginning, I know it was very. Weird. I bet I it was like, real. I really like details like that. <laughs> I I agree with I agree with both of you in a way. Like I like Tubal Kane as a villain. I'm glad that he's there. I'm glad he's there as his contrast. I think his presence <coughs> his presence on the arc later in the film doesn't do anything for me, and that's a way in which I feel like. The script is kind of tackling a lot of things at once, and there are ideas that I think are more fully formed in the mind of Aronofsky and his collaborators than they are than they become in the movie itself. And there are parts where I think those ideas really emerge. I think when you get to the end, when you have Emma Watson and the scene with Russell Crowe on the beach is really phenomenal, and the fact that it comes to her and she is the person who has the final words in this movie is really clear statement of purpose, and I'm really glad that it got to that point. I think what takes us to that point can kind of go back and forth, but I don't mind the back and forth that's kind of what i came around to in the end of this like there are parts of this that are so striking there are parts of that that really stick with me in the performances and what this family is going through and stuff like you guys were talking about like the shots of all the people clinging to the rock in the last moments of the world that it kind of makes up for the confusion of the ideas and this is how i felt about the fountain when i saw it too and I mean, do you guys think the fountain is a fair, like, if people saw and could appreciate the fountain, this is something that they could engage with? No, I mean, I feel like the fountain is is his most successful movie because it's the only one where he was able to find a way to synthesize. Because Darren Aronofsky is completely incapable of bringing two ideas to any particular single shot or, or sequence. I mean, it's always about either the body or the mind, and it's so clumsy in bringing them together. And it's part of the reason why Noah is such a slog. But the fountain, because of its subject matter and because of its sort of bizarre but ultimately effective structure, finds a way to melt the two so that you're actually, you're, like, everything is actually happening together. I mean, and he tries with, you see it in his editing and how he uses Clint Menzel's score to sort of symphonically bring, smush everything together in his movies. But the fountain didn't even need that augmentation. It just sort of, like, naturally worked. But, uh, you know, I think in, in Noah, you have all that sound and fury, and it's only occasionally, and... Uh, um, I think really it's like, as Patches and I, I guess, can agree, the, it's the visceral stuff that works, uh, like the people clinging on the rock, but it has no bearing on whatever he cuts to next, which, you know, is the, the asinine family drama on the arc. And that stuff is completely flat. I think I you're mean, overlooking something, though. It's not just, it doesn't just spontaneously cut back to Jennifer Connelly scolding Noah for being a bad husband. It's you hear the wails of people outside and we drift back and like Noah can hear it. You know, it's, it is haunting him and he's being tested by this. It, it I don't know. It does drift seamlessly for me, especially when, you know, they go from building the arc and all this skepticism from Tubal Cain's uh, his, his posse and wondering what's really going on here. I think the clumsiest thing in the whole movie is getting all the animals on board. Something it's like yes. it has to do, even though it, and it's so it, it's, they do not give a shit about the. It's animals. so underplayed. It's very bizarre well, for take care of themselves, which is you know I I joked before I saw the movie that. You know, the first 90 minutes is going to be Russell Crowe just trying to catch two puppies or something <laughs> and like put them on the ark. But I mean, the, you know, the animals and I really am not the, the Bible scholar or, uh, you know, Torah connoisseur to be able to tell you whether or not in the uh, in the book um, the animals arrange themselves. But I guess that sounds plausible. It seemed, I'm pretty glad that they did that as opposed to any other alternative. It seemed like a pretty smart way to deal with it. Yeah, and they put them all uh, to sleep. I don't know what the alternative would be. Yeah, and then he's like, yeah, here, have some weed or whatever. And they all, <laughs> <laughs> they all, they all he, does, he does drink hallucinatory uh, tea at some point. He, he, he invokes, uh, he, he, he prompts himself to have visions through the tea, man. He succumbs to the tea. Uh, which I, I which really is another scene Patches I really like. pointed out that uh, Patches, uh, you know, really highlighted that, that moment with with the terrible, you know, Kane character eating the whatever it was and how that will no longer exist. I mean, I think, again, this is a very simple idea that any kid in Sunday school or Hebrew school would, would have going through their mind or uh, observed them by their teacher. But at the same time, um, it's about as interesting as the movie gets. I don't really know what... I don't really know what else. Like, I don't think anything else here connects. There's for me, it's provocative or for interesting. For me, it's all about flexing I mean, between the macro and the micro, which is why I think the big action ends up working. It's interesting what you note about Aronofsky never able to like connect the physical with the mental. 
Um, and I kind of see that throughout his career. You're onto something. Um, but I, I do think that this movie is all about the mind, even when it's the big action stuff, because it's so. I mean, I like Russell Crowe in this movie a lot. Um, we can be on his face for most for of it, is. even when he's you know standing behind rock monsters fighting. For me, it's it's all about like, okay, so it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, Aronofsky pulls all the way back and we see the earth and it's covered in hurricanes. You know, that makes sense. That's like a real thing that could happen. But we also know that it's a godly act. Like there's something supernatural about otherworldly spiritual. And then it flashes to the micro. Now, you know, uh, Noah feels this. He knows God is working above him, but he it's intensifying in his own mind from his own perspective for testing his humanity. It's it's that flex back and forth between like feeling the might of God working behind him, but knowing that he has to be a human being. And that's what he's struggling with throughout this movie. Even from the get-go, when he starts having visions, when he's like stepping in bloody sand, and or he doesn't know what he's seeing, but he's being toyed around by something bigger than he is. And that is frustrating. No one wants you, to have uh, to get the message from God. That sucks. It, well, I think, you know, it's interesting because I, one of the reasons that I may not have been particularly excited for this movie and may not have been especially engaged in what was happening is because I've always had a huge problem with, um, at, with, with really Genesis and the story of Noah uh, because I fundamentally don't understand how God can be infallible, uh, but, you know. But also destroy the world. Exactly. But realize you cop to a mistake, create creatures that are essentially in his image. Right. Fuck up all the how time. did he fuck I this up? I don't. Uh, I, this is I, getting really deep, but me. obviously well, this not, provokes me in a similar way. It's like I check out of the Bible on like page ten, <laughs> so um, I I really Which made don't. You the target audience for Noah. Right, I really don't find any of this interesting. There's no dramatic. I don't think that. But that's he, that's the drive of Noah. What you're describing no, is why he, he's able to make he, choices that don't align he, with God. Exactly. I mean, I understand that. Like, he has to actually break from God in order to do what he believes is right. I appreciate that. I just think that, um, and I, I do think it's wise that they don't take the take shelter route, uh, you know, and really go with the ambiguity as to whether or not this is going to happen. I mean, it's like God is talking to Noah. Noah believes it right from the beginning, uh, and he doesn't really question the source of his visions, and they're confirmed by Methuselah, it's played by Anthony Hopkins in a very bizarre role of that's he's obsessed with berries i don't know but uh the uh i enjoyed that but i think that the the crisis here and how it's going to play out and especially how they drag out you know is emma watson going to be having boys or girls and you know of course they're going to be girls or else there's i mean even if you um you know i i certainly couldn't remember that detail from the from the bible but um, not in the bible okay well then i certainly couldn't remember that detail from the bible but uh uh, you know, there's no dramatic question there because there's no drama if she has boys, of course, uh, or there's no rest of civilization, which, spoiler alert, there was. Um, and, you know, I just, I don't find his, I, I just don't find his spiritual battle all that interesting. Like, I think we're just going to be, have to be on, I don't know if it's a, a craft problem here. I, I just feel totally different than you <laughs> on this. And it really, like Noah's material, especially towards the end when he's, you know, feeling the voice of God pressing him to his limits, or, feeling or like he is going to sin. The voice of God. I feel like his problem is that he's not feeling it. Is that he thought is that he had these very clear visions up to a point, and then he's left to interpret it. And what he's right. interpreting doesn't feel right to him, but he doesn't see any other choice, and he's right. trapped between even. I felt that. Like this, of course, is, is a broad extrapolation of you know religion as a whole. The things that you yeah. can see for yourself and the choices you have to make on your own. And I and I understand that, but it feels again so rudimentary and. Also, I feel like the bombast, which again in this particular movie is the most successful stuff, is at odds with or sort of anathema to what could have made this work for me, which is I think, especially given Russell Crowe's you know grounded, sobering performance, um, I think this movie would have worked so much stronger if it were made by almost anybody else. If wow. it were really a totally like a, a, a quiet. Like if this were like a Mike Nichols movie, like if this oh were Jeff, Nich God. Jeff Nichols, not, not not Mike Nichols, I apologize. If this were a Jeff, the Nichols whole thing movie. could take place on the boat after the rain. I'll give you that. I would still yeah. be interested in seeing that movie, but I do and like the full about arc this here. Is that I agree with you completely in what you just said. However, in this particular iteration of the story, it just so happens that the only stuff I liked was actually before that. So it's <laughs> it's it's like the, you know. 
he made hay out of uh, or lemonade or whatever analogy you want to use <laughs> out of the stuff that shouldn't have been there in the first place necessarily. Hay into lemonade? What are you, God? I don't know. And then the stuff that's uh, the stuff that actually has some dramatic potential is is completely David, bundled. I want to like when you talk about the idea of it being the most rudimentary questions. I feel like that's a real strength of Aronofsky for me. Because he's the person asking who accepts, rudimentary questions. Yes, because he's the person who makes a film about like whether or not you give in to your darkness or your lightness, and whether or not you can be your own worst self in Black Swan and in Requiem for a Dream. He just gives into the idea of want and of desire to be better. And I would argue that Requiem about, for a Dream is a film explicitly about the body and and sort of the uh, the pull of sure, but that's also another fundamental. It's like an, another rudimentary question. I mean, he's making movies that are asking these broad questions that people don't ask in the form of film, and you can argue whether or not that is what film is for. But I think that's what really sets his movies apart is that they're asking these fundamental things. That I mean, I haven't thought in a really long time about whether it is possible for people to be inherently good or bad. And Noah made me think about it. And it, in addition to, I do it every time we do the podcast. No. Frankly, yeah, because uh, I I don't think about that because evil. I don't think about that because I don't think it's worth thinking about. I, you don't I, like you think that's not even a question that right. I asked. I don't think that's an interesting question. I think that there's absolutely no way that people can be fundamentally good or bad. Done. <laughs> like I just don't. I don't think that's interesting. I do hear what you're saying about how primal uh, and basic. I mean, um, this is a generous way of saying that his um, sort of intellectual interests are, are basic. Uh, and I get that. I think that, like, sometimes in the movies that it works, again, like in The Fountain, he finds a way to transcend that because his ideas are – they touch something ineffable that that has this, like, sense of wonder to it. Or it, with Requiem for a Dream, it has such like, a physical quality to it that um, even if you know full well because the movie is very transparent about what it's doing, it, it's just – the images are so strong and the way they're assembled is is just, you know – so uh, compelling that, unfortunately, you know, as much as you might want to, you can't really look away. Uh, but with Noah, I just, I think, I mean, I don't, I just don't know, I just don't know what um, what's supposed to be interesting about this. I, I've read reviews by people that I uh, respect, and, and, you know, I, as with you guys, I, I'm happy that you found something to enjoy in this. And again, I'm happy that it exists. I mean, whenever a studio is spending $160 million on something with rock, stone, angels, and whatever, like that's that's a chance worth taking. It's better than another Marvel movie or whatever. But the. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, we'll get there next week. But um, yeah, I, I, just, I just don't know why. I just don't know why Aaron did you Did you enjoy. Now, you didn't really like the performances in this movie very much. I think Russell Crowe is great. I do think. I've never noticed how perfect the triangle, the bumps in his face form, <laughs> one on each cheek and then one <laughs> between his eyebrows. Uh, but he is very good. I think he can be a very good actor when he finds the appropriate role for him. I think Emma Watson is horribly miscast, even though I typically like her. I think Logan Lerman I enjoyed the five uh, seconds of carnal instincts she displays in this movie. I yeah. feel like Emma oh, yeah. Watson – actually, I'm writing a whole piece for tomorrow about – I feel like Emma Watson really emerges near the end of this movie as the moral center of it, which I find completely fascinating. She does, but it's a writing. turbulent ride. I'll I'll agree with that. In the beginning, I have some problems with like – her her being dramatic, overly dramatic, and sure. she seems to she calm did, down. She has to spend a lot of the movie crying, which is a really hard thing to do, and that's part. And of she the doesn't have a lot of that. support. This guy Douglas Booth, that everyone seems to be salivating oh. over, God. he doesn't oh. speak. He's a non-presence in this no, movie. And also, and this is kind of a Jeff Wells criticism, for which I apologize. Oh God, who's too fat? You bring you too fat. <laughs> nobody is nobody is too fat. But Emma Watson character has, attacks. Uh, Jeez. And you know, maybe this is just because of where we know her from, but. She does not have what I would call a uh, believably biblical appearance. <laughs> there, there's, uh, you know, Jennifer Connelly, I would also put in that boat. Really? She's a little bit older here, and so there's like a maternal quality to her, um, which Emma Watson's character literally lacks for most of the movie. But there's something so angular and, and model-esque about Emma Watson, or maybe it's just she was so good in the bling ring. She spent too much time in the fashion photography with world. Her. Yeah, I just like I don't I don't believe for a second that this is an early human. I'll, I'll fight you on Jennifer Connelly though, who I really liked in this movie. I mean, she doesn't have a ton to do, but she gets this one powerhouse 
monologue where she just rips Noah in two. And I, I don't know. I feel her presence throughout the film, even when she's not on screen, just like complicating Noah been... and challenging him in a way that, you know, female characters of the Bible certainly do not. Yeah. She Although she really... is, as most female characters in the Bible, she and Emma Watson both are completely, complete accessories and completely powerless to affect the narrative. Right. Which is right. why I find it so interesting that at the end of the film, Emma Watson is really handed the job of being the moral arbiter of everything we've seen that happen. And that's part of the script. And I think she shoulders that. And yet she's still not the most boring thing. I mean, Logan Lerman plays a character named Ham. He well, that, that is that his destiny Japheth. is to be the most boring. Is that how boring Japheth yeah. is? But there is that interesting <laughs> tension between you know how the women are treated as accessories, which they most certainly are in the story, but also uh, they're explicitly seen as vessels. Yeah. Um, and so no, I mean it's not a mistake that the movie treats. It's not no, just an oversight. No. That's deliberately uh, part right. of what this world was. Right. And now, you know Aronofsky. But they're you know, noble but for that reason. Like they're the smarter yeah. ones. They're the but worthy ones. I, I think I have a problem. Yeah. I, again, I like the look of the rock monsters. I like that he felt um, that he could get away with that. Uh, but at the same time, like, for me, once you're – and you're, the movie starts with rock angel monsters. I mean, this is like minute one. Um, why? And yet they're in none of the marketing at all. Well, right. None. They're digitally removed from the Amazing. marketing. Amazing. I think that like, would, that would scare purists. We can have an um, entire podcast about what Paramount has and has not done. Tomorrow. It would be really—it's really interesting in a legal sense, potentially. I mean, not that I would necessarily think that you know you could press charges effectively, and I'm sure Paramount would win the case. But when you're actually misrepresenting a product, not via editing, but via omission. Uh, well, the screenshot that you tweeted from the trailer is uh, yeah. pretty Yeah, anyway, but like I think if you're allowing yourself to put rock angel monsters, whatever, in your movie, why can't Aronofsky be empowered to? Not rewrite the Bible, but that's not necessarily what he's doing. I mean, he's not bringing the Bible to a new generation here. He's trying to tell the story about this character of Noah. And I think, you know, he's kind of torn between his adherence to what's in the Bible and what is his own invention. Because, like, wouldn't this be a more interesting movie if Jennifer Connelly and Emma Watson were not just window dressing? If if his marriage to Jennifer Connelly's character, um, you know, was turbulent before he... But there's redemption there. There's redemption there in the second half of the movie. It's hard to say that they're written off completely because they bounce back after being sidelined. I I would say they're still sidelined because they're still basically, I mean, in very literal moments, they're still basically telling the men, like, I don't have any control. I don't have any power to control what you're going to do. I don't want you to do it, but I can't actually stop you. But I think that if if it represented them as stronger, it would not properly represent the society that we have now the patriarch the patriarchy that exists i mean and, and that's very literal being like from noah came all of us but i do think as much as aronofsky is kind of making up this weird sci-fi world in which you can see the cosmos during the day it's trying to represent where we've come from and the idea of having envy and having family love and having all of these different complicating emotions it's trying to be the foundation from which we all exist now can can i just piggyback off that mention of the of the cosmos again uh, as i mentioned you earlier cosmos after you saw this well not not yeah not only is a lot of the imagery like cosmos which totally irrelevant comment here but cosmos is like so aggressively anti-religion i'm i'm baffled i'm really shocked that Noah stands between is almost like the link between these crazy Christian films and Cosmos, which is so anti-religion. Um, no, what I was going to say is I'm I'm like in awe of the compositing VFX work in Noah. I know that's like kind of a, a minutia to to gravitate towards, but like seeing the stars in the sky, the attention to detail that before the flood we have this like very thin line between God and Earth, and suddenly after. Noah lands again, you know, now it's blue skies. Now it's just normal world. We're not close mm-hmm. to the heavens anymore in some way, in some important way. Um, but even like all the compositing work, you know, they shot the movie in Iceland, uh, but you know, they'll be in, in grassy, grassy areas or rocky sand. And then all of a sudden they'll be in black volcanic, like the way that they place different locations against each other. And just like the, the sequence that you described earlier, uh, Katie, about the Genesis. Sequence. Yeah. Genesis seeing kind of tying creation into evolution um, through this exciting visual way, uh, I, which I find I found really profound to be like, yes, someone is just going to say creation and evolution can coexist. They can 
can be won. And I was excited by that prospect. Big Bang is God on day one. Um, that kind of um, stuff is exciting for some reason. Is that a Genesis sequence where you're watching kind of the lizard emerge from the water and become a monkey? Is that the only tr uh, trademarked Aronofsky tracking from behind shot? You know, Tubal Kang gets a slight like follow him through the crowd kind of moment, but it's not. You it's know, not uh, like the wrestler. The way that he uses time lapse is for me at least the way that he. Uh, it's the most typical. Of his uh, editing style that you've seen, you know, with these, like, hyper-fast yeah. cuts, um, you know, that that was a very Aronofsky touch. But I do think it would be really interesting. I think you could put this movie in front of his most hardcore fans, uh, you know, in a vacuum, and they would not be able to tell you that Darren Aronofsky made it. And that's certainly the first time you could uh, say that about a Darren Aronofsky film. And I don't think you should expect otherwise. But he's fluctuated. Uh, I mean, the jump, from, the jump from Fountain to Wrestler was pretty... Drastic. Right. I mean, that, that's not deliberately tried to grow and change. Uh, this is not a criticism in and of itself. It's an observation. Leave Darren uh, alone, David. But uh, you know, I I think yeah, I don't know. I just I, again, what Patches was saying about creation and like I none of that. It, like, you were just different different people because none of that interests me. <laughs> just, uh, like at no point in the movie was I engaged with that. I mean, I, I think the beginning and end for me was really um, with the character of Noah here. Um, and I'm not usually a very character-oriented guy. I'll, I'll be the first to attach myself to theme at the expense of everything else. But because I found the theme and, and the ideas so lacking... You were too uh, absorbed in the beautiful score by Clint Mansell, which uh, you adore. Well, the score... Patches is a big score guy. <laughs> and I'm becoming a bigger score guy, but less interested in the, the traditional folks. Uh, yeah, he's in the noise. No, but I, you know, I'm, def I'm more interested... These days, because you have people like Mika Levy and Johnny Greenwood doing scores for movies, and you know, I get to not care about the Stephen Price score for Gravity, which is such a bore, or any anything Hans Zimmer does, which I know Patches hates. Uh, and Clint Mansell, uh, you know, I thought his his work on uh, Black Swan was a great update of Tchaikovsky, and I thought that his iconic. We use music for Requiem for a Dream and The Fountain is uh, everything it's cracked up to be. This sounded very generic to me. What do you think? I, I, it's not as... Uh, go oh, I uh, go. No, you. Oh, I was going to say it's not as striking to me as Black Swan, but I did enjoy it at the time. It didn't occur to me as being significantly lesser until I started hearing. I liked, I liked the main theme that accompanies Noah, not when it's getting all like brommed out. And really action oriented, um, and it, which sounds a lot like the fountain actually run through a number of filters. Um, but he does some stuff with his fountain riffs that sounds very Maurice Jarre to me, which is you know like Lawrence of Arabia, these big epics, uh, and it kind of has that really Eastern flair. No, definitely. I mean, if you're going to do a Bible movie, uh, you got to play it old school a little bit. But I think he's kind of retreading a lot of ground with this music and for people who are very familiar with the fountain they'll probably be pining for something a little softer emotional uh yeah i wish i had seen the fountain more recently so i could yeah i would recommend case, that potentially i feel the, the same way that this movie that like i i and maybe this is just the look of them or their scale that is making me feel this way but I wouldn't be surprised if you could find some parallels and maybe some examples of ideas that Noah touches upon that the fountain uh, touched upon more articulately. But uh, it's all hearsay until I or Patches gets a chance to a revisit it. special episode about the fountain. I haven't seen it in a while either. But uh, incest, right? The Lord told
Hey, Patches, what was this week's lightning round question? Yes, it was in honor of the Raid 2, uh, which... Oh, I guess we're not going to talk about. Uh... <laughs> I haven't seen it. I'm Wait, too, you get you I, get one word. Patches, one word on the raid two. Uh, I'm just going to make. My, I'm going to make that noise. That... I agree. That's two <laughs> words. We're so alone about that too, which I find really surprising. I guess people. You know, I'd rather watch Pina for a great dance film than I would The Raid. I, literally, you took the words out of my mouth. It must have been while you were kissing me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know the rate the the hyper violence just does not do it for me and for two and a half hours it really oh my god I can't take it like the car chase stuff I guess is kind of cool but it's because I I distracted myself for the hour before it and then suddenly I was watching a car chase I don't know it it didn't work for me there's no story it's bad I love I love that stuff Um, I love such intricately choreographed why do I love Jackie Chan movies so much and hate the raid exactly because there's, I mean, the raid is so overly punctuated with, you know, gore of both the practical and CG variety that it's just like every move is blowing somebody's head off, and it doesn't really allow the artistry to develop. It's way too athletic. It loses some like a more balletic quality. I don't know. And it's just yeah, of course, the story is not existent. Hyperactive, I guess, uh, is the, the key here. So, there's just like it's it's all uh, volume and not, I don't know, and not. Uh, design i mean there's no sense of build to it uh it's just it's most of it is irrelevant i think that's the problem too it's not story driven it's funny there was a scene a deleted scene of the raid too that's already popped up online and i saw commentary from the director gareth uh evans yeah um who said that oh well we decided to take it out of the film although it's a it's a huge shootout lots of people get shot and it's a bloody mess it's so fun you know, there's a lot of fighting. It's another cool scene. Uh, we decided to take it out because it had, you know, it was all characters that have nothing to do with the rest of the plot. And I'm like, why is this scene in the movie? Like, why did you even shoot this? What is it? What could this possibly do to enhance the story, which is also mostly random characters interacting? You know, there's a whole stretch of the movie where a character, a, an actor enough. from the last raid, appears right. as a different character, but kind of looking the same, and really and has nothing to do with him anything. In a scene that has, I mean, the scene in which they introduce that character is the most flagrant example of the raid's uh, lack of narrative momentum or purpose, because they introduce him. Um, in a, like a five or six minute scene where he stalks and then kills a few characters who are literally have nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I mean, it is it is purely place setting. I feel like I could watch uh, the raid too. In movie is, I feel like I could watch it in chunks. Just like send me YouTube videos of the different fights, and I would be much more content than watching yeah, I mean, it as like, a two and a half. Unlike Legend movie. of Drunken Master, like a, the Jackie Chan film, or Iron Man, which is a Donnie Yen film, uh, not Iron Man, uh, Iron Monkey. Uh, you know, there's a real, there's a variety to it. There's, a, there's the sort of that sense of dance again. You know, as you see in, in a film like Pina, um, is there, and the, the expression is first, and the and a sense of character movements, right? But I mean, it's like the expression is first, and then the it, it drives the movements. But it feels like that relationship is reversed in the raid films, so that it's purely about the physicality and not. You know, t- towards whatever ends it's going. And, <laughs> Katie, uh, it can't wait to see this movie in yeah. theaters. It, I, 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 I we'll basically had no up, good answers to this whole what's too violent for you question because most things are too violent for me. <laughs> I, I just thought The Raid 2 was one of the most boring movies I've seen. I would tend to agree with time. you. But anyway, the lightning round question for this yes. week is is in honor of The Raid 2, what, what movie really crosses the gore line for you? What's just too much? Katie... Everything is too much. My but answer is mostly everything, um, including Noah in some parts. There's a little bit of blood that I just uh, wait. Really? Not really. I no, it's fine. I'm not gonna like write a complaint, but there were some parts of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but there's a lot of people dying through like access to the head and stuff, and I was like, all right, that's uh, that's that's fine. I want to. I want to know what you no, have I'll, written complaints Noah. for. No, no, I can't. Your local paper. Anything. Why did you I mean, do this? Mostly, I know that there are plenty of bloody horror movies. Like, I've never seen a Saw movie, and I never plan to. I just, that's not. Well, what's your, what's your answer? What's your pick uh, here? I think Raghu Tomich came up with a pretty uh, indisputable answer, which is in Shia Nandalu. I'm not trying to watch that eye slit shit. 
And that is, I mean, that's a, that is an example of how you can do gore with very little effort and maximum impact because holy shit, that's still Very cool. little effort. Didn't they have to go find like a sheep's eye? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not that. I mean, compared to like what a saw movie Well, you requires, live in Brooklyn, so you can get sheep's eyes like right around the true. corner at your artisanal sheep eye Yeah, I, I kill them for my art projects all the time. Yeah, that's a that's impressive, you know, uh, low effort, big payoff. Um, I guess I'll give mine. I'm going to go with uh, at Rob Trench, who said Dead Alive slash Brain Dead, uh, which is the Peter Jackson film, which is just sick as shit. I mean, the man talk about a gore fest is just like continuously vomiting or bleeding all over the place from like disgusting puppets or there's just scenes of like old people chewing on ears. You know, that's just that is sick. Sick stuff, but brilliant man. Oscar-winning director. <laughs> I'll go with, um, where'd he go? Oh, uh, Franco Asmael at Disco Paco, who says, Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning, because who needs to see a point of view of a guy having his family killed in front of him, even if it's Van Damme? The movie does, uh, as per Disco Paco's point, open with a very disturbing home invasion sequence. Where the guy's character, was all his family is killed right in front of him, and it's like you know, you, you, learning that the identity of the bad guy is Van Damme is a little bit of a relief. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is so, a silly movie. Yeah, it's so, no, but I mean, no, it's, it's, it's not. It's, that, that opening scene, scene is horrific, less, and it's like that's the the play setting for the movie. I mean, that's the the way into it, and it's uh, it's it's definitely a bit stomach churning. Man, that was a fun, uh, fun ending to our movie about <laughs> fluffy animals on a boat with Russell Crowe. And the destruction of humanity. Well, for more destruction of humanity, you can come back next week when we review Captain America, the Winter Soldier. But before then, we're going to have a whole other episode. There's a lot going on next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, writer of the internet. I am on the entire I internet? wrote the entire internet with Al Gore many years ago. And um, I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches, and I put all my writing of the internet on Tumblr, which is at mattpatches.com. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a lot less belligerent than I was about 15 minutes ago. Uh, you can I write on websites. I'm uh, writing for the Dissolve a bunch these days. Thank you, everyone, who heard me mumbling about my Lars von Trier article and uh, then said they heard about me doing that on the show in the comments and read it on the Dissolve. Uh, anyway, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week. Uh-huh.